You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Good morning. I'm going to read from uh, the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, from verse 22 to verse 32. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray. Uh, God, thank you for your word, um, just as uh, the case was made for, for Jesus and who he is and his uh, divine power back then. I just pray that you speak to our hearts and uh, you convict each one of us of, of that fact, of the, the, the basis of, of our faith, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he was raised from the dead, and that he is uh, the Son of God, that he is God. Uh, I just pray that you be with uh, Andrew today. You anoint him and uh, use him to um, to give us the teaching this morning. Amen. Am I on right now? Yeah, now. Okay, good. Um, so, did you guys hear what I said before? Uh, anyways, I was I was having you guys think about who your friends are because I have a question about your friends, and the question is this: Do you have somebody in your friend group who? is always steering the conversation back to themselves. (laughs) I see some of you nodding your heads. So you know what kind of friend I'm I'm, I'm talking about. You tell a story, they've got a story to top it, right? You start sharing your own struggles. They, doesn't matter if they're in a mixed group or not, they cut you off and they bring it back to yours. They're always steering the conversation back to themselves. We have friends that are like this. Now, if you're having a hard time thinking about who that friend is in your friend group, then what that might mean, I'm not saying it is the case, but that might mean that you are that friend. (laughs) Um, But all joking aside, uh, I think all of us struggle to one degree or another of of wanting to have the spotlight be turned back onto us. Maybe not in the sense of like we want to show off something or something like that, but like we can be pretty self-focused a a lot of the time. And so we understand what that is all about. But when we look at the book of Acts, 
one of the main characters in the book of Acts, and it, it almost uh, sounds demeaning for, for me to refer to him as a character because he's way more than that, is someone who does not struggle with this at all, ever. And that person that I'm referring to is the person of the Holy Spirit. Instead of always trying to steer the conversation back to himself, he is always working in and through others to, stir, to steer the conversation back to Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself said in John chapter 16, verse 14, regarding the Holy Spirit, he, referring to the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. He'll make much of me. In other words, the Spirit will shine the spotlight on Jesus and his kingdom. And we see the Spirit doing this throughout the whole entire book of Acts. Now, we have been out of the book of Acts for several uh, weeks now. So I thought it would be maybe helpful to recap some of the things that we have already seen um, in the book. When the book begins, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And what he does is he gathers himself, his, around himself his disciples to create a new community organized around himself, his person and his work, not around the Old Testament law, not around the temple, but around himself. And he gives them a new mission. And he tells them that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of, of the earth. But then he tells them something strange. He says, okay, you've got this new mission. The first thing I want you to do is wait. Stay in Jerusalem to be clothed with power from on high. That's how he says it in Luke. He's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. So he gives them this mission, and he tells them to wait. And then he ascends into heaven to the right hand of God the Father. And what the disciples do is that they wait. They have a prayer meeting. They elect a new leader, and they wait. And then 10 days after that, Pentecost comes. And if you remember at Pentecost, what we find there is that 100, about 120 disciples of Jesus are gathered in this house uh, 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 the sound of a mighty rushing wind comes into that house. Divided tongues of fire are, appear on their heads, and they began to declare, proclaim the mighty works of God in languages that they did not previously know. Now, we said earlier that there were two kind of reactions to this, because remember, this is Pentecost, so that's a pilgrim feast. So at the time... Of Pentecost, Jerusalem is kind of like filled to the brim with pilgrims coming from all over the world to celebrate Pentecost in Jerusalem, evidently many of them passing by this house and then hearing these mighty works being proclaimed by these disciples in their own native language. Now what Acts 2 tells us is that there were two reactions to them hearing this. One was, some of them are just kind of confused and they have questions. And so they, they ask, what does this all mean in verse 12? But then others lay this accusation and say, no, we don't really need to listen to them. They're, they're actually drunk on new wine. Right? And those are kind of like the two reactions. And that brings us to the point where we stopped uh, the last time we were in Acts. And that is Peter's response. So Peter, at this point, in Pentecost, there's this 
crowd of thousands of people, right? They're all having these different reactions to what they are, are hearing and witnessing. And then Peter uh, addresses this crowd. Now, we said last time we were together uh, in the book of Acts that Peter's response is sort of organized around three separate Old Testament texts, which he quotes. The first one that he quotes is from Joel chapter 2, right? <clears throat> and in that passage, that text is about the end time outpouring of the Spirit. So he quotes that passage to help them understand what's going on. But then he quotes Psalm 16, which is ultimately about the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And then he quotes Psalm 110.1, which is about the ascension and authority of the Messiah. And then he relates that to the authority of the Messiah to be able to pour out his spirit. So he organizes his response around these three texts. And if you were to summarize his message to the crowd, maybe it would go something like this. He would say to them, look, what you're hearing, what you're seeing, what you're experiencing is not wine-filled people, but spirit-filled Christians who are prophesying in these tongues regarding what God has done to inaugurate Jesus' spirit-filled kingdom by raising him from the dead and sitting him at the right hand of God the Father. Now, what, what Peter does in this speech is just one example of many speeches in the book of Acts where a spirit-filled disciple does what spirit-filled disciples do, right? Steer the conversation back to Jesus, to put the spotlight on Jesus. Now today, we're just going to look at sort of the second movement of Peter's response to this crowd, which we've said is all about Jesus' death and resurrection. And he kind of points us to three truths regarding Jesus' death and resurrection. Number one, he says it was planned by God. That's our first point. The second thing he mentions is that it's predicted by David. And then the third thing he mentions is that it is witnessed by the disciples. So those will be the three points. So let's think about the first point. Jesus' death and resurrection was planned by God. So when we think about Jesus' crucifixion, his death, one of the questions that arises is, okay, who is responsible? Who's responsible for Jesus' death? Now, admittedly, the answer to that question is pretty complex when you think about it, right? Because on one level, you could say, well, um, can't we say that it is Judas motivated by his greed that brought about Jesus' death? Right? He's the one who handed Jesus over to the Jewish leaders, the, the chief priests and the scribes. He's like, in one way of looking at it, he's like kind of like the first domino to fall that leads to Jesus' death. So maybe we could, we could lay the blame at his feet. But others are saying, no, 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 no. The Jewish leaders have been planning this for a long time, and they, motivated by envy, the Bible says, they handed Jesus over to Pilate. And they said, no, uh, it's actually Pilate. Pilate, because he was motivated by appeasing the crowd and not getting into trouble, and he had been in trouble with the crowds for some time now, he's the one who handed Jesus over to be crucified. And others say, no, no, it's the crowds. The crowds were the ones who said, crucify him, crucify him, and they chose the release of who? Barabbas over Jesus. So maybe it's the crowds. But when you, when you look at the whole New Testament, though, the testimony of the New Testament is to say, well, actually, 
All of us are responsible. Because the Bible teaches that Jesus died for our sins. But listen to how Peter answers the question. Reading again um, in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Right, like... um, In the ancient world, nobody questioned whether or not Jesus performed miracles. The one question was, what was the source? Are these miracles empowered by the devil? Or or who's behind these miracles? But nobody questioned the miracles. But then he goes on to say, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified And killed. You there being those who he's addressing, the men of Israel. But then he goes on to say, by the hands of lawless men, which you could translate men without law. Who are they? Gentiles, right? The Romans. So he's implicating everybody here. That's one thing that he's doing. But he's adding to that, though, too. On one level, Peter is saying, yes. Like all the people that we previously mentioned, they are responsible for Jesus' death. Judas, the Jewish leaders, Pilate, the crowd, all of us. But what we have to understand is that ultimately, this was all in accordance with the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was in accordance with God the Father's will. Now, don't mistake that to mean that this was against God the Son's will. Right? Because what does Jesus say in John 10, 18? He says, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus' will and God the Father's will work in harmony, right? And they take responsibility over Jesus' death, which was motivated by love, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's the Father's love in John 3, 16. But then also Jesus' love, right? When you think about Paul, he talks about Jesus, and he said, Jesus loved me. This is Galatians 2.20. And gave himself up for me. So it's interesting, this, this phrase, delivered up, because it's used over and over and over again in the Bible of how Jesus was given over to his enemies. But it includes... The Jewish leaders, Pilate, the crowds, they all deliver up, deliver up, deliver up. But then when you look at our passage, ultimately he was delivered up according to God's plan. And then in that passage in Galatians chapter 2, Jesus uses the same word that when you translate it, he gave himself, it's the same word, he delivered himself up. And so all of that is working in, in, in conjunction And so when you ask the question, who is responsible for Jesus' death, the answer to that question is, well, it was according to God's plan and Jesus' plan, and it was motivated by by love. Now, this is consistent with everything that the book of Acts teaches us regarding God. The picture given in Acts regarding God is that he is sovereign over everything, right? Nothing happens good or bad outside of his 
perfect will. Now, I, um, I don't know how that truth sits with you. Uh, because it, 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 it's kind of a lot to take in. Right? You may feel uncomfortable with that or, or maybe even disturbed by that. Because what it means is that God is sovereign over your suffering. And how are we supposed to think about that? Like the, the topic of God and, and how he relates to suffering is, is a difficult one. And how, what are we supposed to do with it? Some have said throughout history, and some Eastern religions go this route, it's like, well, maybe there really isn't suffering. Like we, what you have to realize in part of your spiritual journey is that suffering isn't real. Some people have taken that route, right? But that doesn't seem, how do you guys feel about that? <laughs> uh, it doesn't seem palatable to me, right? Well, some people say, well, it's not that, that suffering is not real. Suffering is definitely real. God is not real. Some people take that route. But that's, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow too, right? It, because what that means ultimately is that your suffering is meaningless. And, and, and that has been nuanced um, in recent years. Some atheists are saying, well, because here's the thing. Secular psychologists know that a person cannot survive with the idea that their suffering is meaningless. You just, you can't. So what they say is, well, we can assign meaning to suffering. But suffering in and of itself is, it doesn't have inherent meaning. And to me, that's just another way of saying the same thing, it, it, that your suffering is meaningless. Right? So as hard as it is to believe that a sovereign God and, and, you know, includes suffering in the world, those two alternatives, the, the, in my opinion, they're equally problematic, if not more problematic. But if you were to say, okay, suffering is in the world and God is, is sovereign, does that mean that God is, is cruel? And what I think the Bible is inviting us to believe is that God is a good God who is a trustworthy king. Right? That all the suffering that you experience, whether you, whether you understand it or not, and, and think about how small we are, Right? In relation, you can't even see us from the moon, right? When they take a picture of the globe. And that's not very far away from the earth relative to the solar system, relative to the galaxy, relative to the universe, right? And for us to think that, you know, it makes sense that we wouldn't understand. To me, it makes sense. But the suffering that we endure was motivated, is motivated by God's love. And on top of that, God doesn't just watch us suffer from a distance, right? God the Son took on humanity to join us in our suffering. That, that's a big deal to me, right? It, it's not just, like if there was just some guy in a, in a corporate office somewhere, you know, and the workers down at the Target, he works at the headquarters, right? They're, they're suffering because their scanners don't work. And he just decides like, ah, well, that's not a big deal. Like, it's like, well, kind of is, you know, for them. And, but he doesn't know anything of their suffering. But that's not true of God. Right, right. The second person of the Trinity took on humanity, and he joined us in our suffering. And on top of that, God knows, because of how big he is, 
that he can bring about the best of all possible worlds, and that includes suffering. And so the paradigm by which we can understand suffering is the cross, which happened in accordance with God's definite plan and foreknowledge. Because what happens at the cross? What was it motivated by? What did we say? God's love? Jesus' love. Does God the Son join us in our suffering at the cross? He definitely does. Like, there's no greater suffering that ever happened in the history of the world than the cross. Not just physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. It's the worst thing that ever happened. It's also the best thing that ever happened. You see, you see that? So the, the cross gives us the lens by which to understand suffering. Suffering can be motivated by love. Look at the cross. Suffering can include God suffering along with us. Look at the cross. Suffering can include bringing about the best of all possible worlds. Look at the cross. Right? And this is not just like abstract ideas. Talk, call Carlton and ask him if this truth is an abstract idea. It's what he's clinging on to right now. That this, his suffering has meaning because it brings him closer to the living Christ and, and they, they bond, if you will, over their suffering, at least in one sense. And think about other people who have been to war together. Or other things. What do they bond over? The suffering that they endure together. So if God is, 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 if he has his aims on union and knows because he's a community of persons that that's the best possible life, well, then maybe it would include suffering. And I, I don't pretend to know all of that, but that, that's just something to consider. So when we think about the question, okay, who is responsible for Jesus' death? We have to say God, and ultimately God. But what about his resurrection? Well, Peter goes on to say in verse 24, God raised him, from, raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, this is kind of an unusual statement because what Peter does is he, he uses a mixed metaphor. He takes two ideas that don't often go together. One idea being of, and you find this in the Old Testament, for example, uh, Psalm 18.4, where like death is kind of like these ropes that bind you up, right, and keep you in the grave. And so the picture here, on one level, is God unties those ropes. He unties those cords. But Peter doesn't say he loosens the cords of death. What does he say? He loosens the what? Pangs of death. What's that? This is, this is a word that is associated with child labor. Is it painful to... Give birth to a child. <laughs> I don't know. You're going to have to tell me. <laughs> like, yes, right? Yes, right? And so, but it issues forth once the pain stops, and then it issues forth and what? New life. New life. So what, what he's, he combines these two ideas in this very unusual way, and I think what he's trying to communicate is, look, um, <clears throat> it was inevitable for Jesus to be birthed out of the grave, right? And it's interesting when you think about the whole Bible testifies to the fact that tribulation, which is often in connection with child labor. 
Tribulation brings forth new life. Where do, we, where do we see the new life of the new heavens and the new earth begin? Jesus popping out of the grave. And this is, that's crazy. I mean, this is pretty poetic, uh, Peter's language here, and really amazing, right? Because of who he said he was. You know, Jesus said, I have the power to lay down my life, and I, I have the power to raise it up again. Right? Because he is the Messiah. So it was inevitable for him to be birthed out of the grave. So when we ask the question, who is responsible for Jesus' death and his resurrection? We have to say God is. It was in accordance with his plan, in accordance with Jesus' plan. That's our first point. But it was also predicted by David. Peter goes on to say in verse 25, For David said regarding him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also uh, will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption, or decay, or the decomposition of a body. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter now, he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, which is a psalm written by who? King David. King David is the anointed king of Israel, right? And so therefore he is a type, he's a foreshadowing, he's a picture of, the final king of Israel, and in fact, the whole world and universe, Jesus, the Christ. Christ means anointed king, right? So Peter is picturing him, and he's rejoicing, and he's putting his hope in the fact that God is going to raise the Christ from the dead in order that the Christ and himself might join God and experience God's fullness and gladness. Now, what Peter does when he reads Psalm 16, and in fact, when he reads the whole Old Testament, and you see all the apostles do this, is he reads it in the way Jesus instructed him to. That is Christologically. He reads all the Old Testament in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so what he says as he's reading Psalm 16 and Paul is going to do the same thing with the same passage in Acts chapter 13, is that Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 16. In fact, what he's going to argue next is that it is impossible for David to be the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 16. Listen to Peter's exposition now, beginning in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So Peter, remember, he's addressing the crowd. He's saying to the crowd, we could leave here right now and go to the tomb of Jesus. I mean, the tomb of David. We could go to the tomb of David right now, and would we find it empty? No. Would we find a 
body that wasn't decomposed there? No. By this point, you'd just you'd find bones, right? A fully decomposed body, right? So, okay. And then he goes on to say, being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he was set <clears throat> that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. Right now we're talking about the Davidic covenant. God made a promise to David that one of his descendants, one from his line, would be the Christ. He's echoing Psalm 132.11 right now. Because that's true, he goes on to say, he foresaw, verse 31, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was, <clears throat> that he was not abandoned to Hades or the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. Okay, so do you understand the logic of the argument here, right? He's saying, if God promised that the Messiah would come from the line of David, which he did, and if God said that this Messiah would not, their body would not decompose in the grave, then David can't be the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. But if Jesus came from the line of David, which he did, and if Jesus' body didn't decompose in the grave, which it didn't, we'll see in point number three, then that means that Jesus is the Messiah, come from the line of David. Now, for the logic to work, Jesus has to have been physically resurrected from the dead. He, he can't be spiritually resurrected from the dead. It has to have happened in actual history. Otherwise, the whole argument just kind of falls apart. And that brings us to our third point. Jesus' death and resurrection was planned by God. It was predicted by David, but it was also witnessed by the disciples. So Peter goes on to say in verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. In other words, Peter's saying to the crowd, Hey, the people that you're hearing prophesying in tongues that they did not know previously regarding the mighty works of God, all those people saw the risen Christ, which is an extraordinary claim. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, you, there's 120 people there, right? Any of the thousands of people there would be like, wait, no, what? wait a minute, you saw the risen Christ? 120 of them would go, yes, yes, I saw the risen Christ. Now, as extraordinary as that is, that's completely consistent with what the rest of the New Testament says. On 12 separate different occasions, Jesus appeared after his death, risen from the grave. Wait, and I have a slide, hopefully, that we can show. Not this one, this one, okay. The, this is the record of, the, of the, what the New Testament lists out. Notice the first one, right? Mary Magdalene. How many demons was she possessed by? Do you guys remember? Luke chapter Seven. Seven demons. So how likely is her testimony uh, going to be regarded as valuable in a court of law? <laughs> very, very low. One, she's a woman, demon-possessed woman. You know, okay, at least previously. So that's who God chose. Right? Somebody whose testimony would not even be admissible, right? he's like, yeah, that's, that's who I'm going to choose. 
to be the first witness of the resurrected Jesus, because that's how God works. Peter, on numerous occasions, I think it was five or six times, saw the resurrected Jesus. Peter is the one who's talking. Right? He's, I saw Jesus raised from the dead. Right? Or if you can't, like, people who were walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they saw Jesus. Right? Or, or you think about various numbers of the disciples. He came to his disciples, his apostles, uh, 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 several times. And they saw him raised from the dead. He came to 500 people at one time, 1 Corinthians 15 says. They saw him raised from the dead. And this is within the time frame of the, of the writing of the New Testament. I think the population of the world is much, much smaller. right? And, and, and Paul says, you can go and talk. Did you see Jesus risen from the dead? Yeah, we did. In the living memory of the writings that we are reading. Right? This is... I don't think we get it. Like, like, this is very unusual, to say the least. Right? Or James, right? the skeptical brother of Jesus. Right? We learned that from John 7, 5. He did not believe in it. I mean, would you be, if your brother came to you and said, hey, look, I am God, and I am also the Savior of the world. Think about your sibling. Right? What would you say back to your sibling? Right? You maybe nothing, you would quietly dial 911, right? <laughs> and nevertheless, right, what does James do? James, be, James says, No, I mean, my brother's God. I saw him rise, he was risen from the dead. I saw it. Right? So the, 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 the uh, consistent testimony of the entire New Testament is that on multiple occasions and under variety of circumstances, Individuals and groups saw, heard, touched, walked with, and, di and dined with the risen Christ. Now, what you have to understand about these people is that this is not something they would expect. It would not be easy for them to even wish for. Because they wouldn't have a category for it. In Jewish thought at the time in the first century, they didn't have a category for an individual person rising in the middle of history. They had a category for everyone rising at the end of history. They had a category for that, but an individual rising in the middle of history? So this is not something that they would expect. Neither would it be something that they would even have a category to wish for. And guess what? When the women came back from the grave, did the apostles believe them? No. <laughs> no, they didn't. Right? These are not stories that the early church would make up because it makes them look bad, right? But, inevitable, but they have to testify to this because it's what happened. And there's nothing to be gained by this being your testimony in a worldly sense. You have everything to lose, but nevertheless, they can't deny what they saw, what they heard. And so, as extraordinary as this claim is that Peter is making, it's consistent with the New Testament, but it's also consistent with the boldness of the witnesses, right? And it gives an explanation for the rise of the early church within the generation that the founder died, right? What, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, 
I mean, so, historian, everybody has to give an account of the rise and the widespread, the quick widespread gospel, the gospel spread throughout the world, the known world. How did that happen if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Because it's not like people were happy to receive the message. Some were. But there was opposition, persecution. Some faced martyrdom. We know people, or at least we've read about people, who die for what they believe. But how many people do you know are willing to die for what they knew to be false? Which is what you would have to believe regarding these early witnesses. Because they're saying, like, recant Jesus. He did not rise from the dead. And they're like, you're going to have to kill me because I, I saw him. And I, and I follow him. And it's like, wow. Now that, that's a strong, in my opinion, apologetic for the resurrection. But back to Pentecost. What are we supposed to think about this event? They're in this house. I mean, this happened. How are we supposed to think about that? Well, the spirit-filled Peter tells us, listen, it's all about the person and work of Jesus. His spirit being poured out. His death and his resurrection. And what we're going to see next time, his ascension and his authority as one raised to the right hand of God the Father. All the mighty works that you are hearing about are about this. All the tongues, the prophecies that you are hearing being spoken on Pentecost are about this, and they all validate who Jesus claimed to be. He is the Christ whose kingdom has now been inaugurated. But notice what Peter does as a spirit-filled follower of Jesus. Does he put the spotlight on himself? Does he put the spotlight on the miracles that are occurring? It's not like he minimizes those or, or ignores those, but is that where the spotlight is? No, the spotlight is on Jesus and his kingdom because that's what spirit-filled followers do. They steer the conversation they steer their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit back to Jesus. And I want to conclude with asking all of us a question. If you think about your own life as a spotlight, what would it be shining on? What would other people say it shines on? Would they say, well, kind of shines on them. They kind of make everything about them. They make everything about maybe their problems, maybe their failures. Some of us take that route. We call it humility, but it, it, is it really? When we're having the focus on our, ourselves? I'm not saying, I am not advocating for ignoring your problems or, you know, that you don't feel bad about your failures. Like, we want to be honest about those things. I'm not talking about ignoring those things. 
Some of us take the route of like, no, no, I, I, because of insecurity or some other reason, like we want to put the spotlight on our successes, our triumphs. But both of those strategies are, are very similar in a way, aren't they? They're both making it all about you. I'm guilty of that for sure. But, but, but what, what we want our prayer to be is, because <clears throat> the problem isn't that you don't know enough Bible. That's not the problem. The problem isn't that you're not trying hard enough. That's not the problem. We need more of God's Spirit. Because if we're filled with God's Spirit, you won't have to tell us to put the spotlight on Jesus. It's what's going to come out. So if you're, if you're thinking, like, man, I, I don't know if I can say that, that my life is a spotlight that shines on Jesus, then this is the opportunity, right, to, to turn to God and just be real. He already knows. Be real with him about where you're at and say, evidently, like, evidently, I need you to fill me with yourself so that my life can make much of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you broken. Please heal us. We come to you empty. Please fill us with your spirit. Use these broken vessels to shine forth your love and your truth, your gospel, so that Jesus Christ, our King, could be made much of. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.